Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Heather, and I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid 16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester, and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com slash tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E N G L A N D C A S T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much, and now to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our connection to our own humanity. This is another joint episode with Melita Thomas of Tudor Times. This is the third joint episode we've done, and I'm looking forward to doing a great deal more original content and podcasts with them. Just a quick note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast of the Month is How Jamaica Conquered the World, a fantastic podcast on the history of Jamaica. Check it out on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Or at www.howtomakeaconquerytheworld.com. And as always, you can get show notes and more information about the Renaissance English History Podcast at www.englandcast.com, where you can also sign up for my mailing list. Mailing list subscribers receive extra mini casts each month. This past month was on Henry Fitzroy, Henry VIII's illegitimate son with Bessie Blount, as well as book giveaways. News and other cool stuff. For this episode as well, you can get lots more information on Catherine of Aragon at www.tutortimes.co.uk. So, moving on from that, let me introduce Melita Thomas to you. Melita Thomas is a co founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tutortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. So, Melita, can you tell me the sort of basic story of Catherine of Aragon's life? 
Okay. Well, Catherine was, as probably most people know, the youngest child of Ferdinand and Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile. The marriage of her parents had brought together the various kingdoms of Spain, which made them very influential throughout Europe, and therefore Catherine was quite a prize in the marriage market. Part of her parents' strategy was to isolate France, whom they saw as the most dangerous aggressor within Europe, although, of course, the French may have seen that the Spanish were rather aggressive. But part of the strategy involved marital alliances, and Catherine was promised to Arthur, Prince of Wales, the son of Henry VII. Henry VII had won the throne at the end of the Wars of the Roses, and he was very keen to be recognised by such an important monarchy as Spain's, and therefore he was very keen for the Prince of Wales to marry Catherine. The arrangement was made in 1489 when Catherine was about four, her prospective bridegroom about a year younger. She eventually came to England when she was aged 15, and she and Arthur were married in a very extravagant ceremony at St Paul's Cathedral. Unfortunately, poor old Arthur died within about six months, and Catherine, initially thinking that she would go home to Spain, was kept in England as her father in particular and Henry, her father-in-law, quarrelled over what to do with her. Henry didn't want to send her back because he would not only have had to send her dowry back with her, but he'd also have had to send her her pension that she was due as a widowed Princess of Wales. And as most people know, Henry wasn't that keen on parting with his cash. So poor Catherine was isolated, really, and her position got worse after her mother died in 1504. The solution that they found was for Henry's younger son, Henry Duke of York, to marry Catherine, but since he was several years younger than her, he wasn't actually old enough to be married. So for the next few years, up until 1509, Catherine was stuck in England, kept short of money, not allowed to go home, not allowed to get married, and really in a bit of a limbo state. Everything seemed to come up roses, though, in 1509 when Henry VII died and his son, now Henry VIII, decided that he would marry Catherine immediately. Within weeks of his father's death, Henry and Catherine were married and they were crowned together in June 1509. So Catherine was now Queen of England, which obviously she had felt had been her destiny ever since her parents first betrothed her to Arthur. And for the five years or so, Henry and Catherine, they were very happy together. He was completely devoted to her, very romantic in his ideas of marriage, Henry. He liked having a damsel in distress that he could joust in front of and she would dance with him and uh, generally behave like a Arthurian romance, really. They, they liked to dance and joust and party together. And she quickly became pregnant, but unfortunately her first baby, it was a, it was a stillbirth. And then her second child, who was a son, Henry... Duke of Cornwall died when he was about eight weeks old, which was obviously very upsetting, both personally and politically for them. But it wasn't just about childbearing for Henry and Catherine. He was actually very respectful of her intellectual capabilities and her ability to work with him as, as almost a partner in marriage. And when he went into France at the head of an army in 1513, Catherine was named as his regent and she took complete control of the country and raised an army to fend off the invading Scots, which resulted in a very, very big victory for England over Scotland at the Battle of Flodden. 
and generally performed in every respect as a queen should, apart from not being able to have a child, a son who lived. They did have a living child, Mary, who was born in 1516, but there were no sons to follow. And over time, Henry began to worry about what would happen to to England after his death. The thought of a daughter as an heir was unacceptable to him. But for another nine years after Mary's birth, it looked as though he would accept that he had a daughter for an heir. And then in the mid-1520s, there was a perfect storm for Catherine's marriage. She could no longer bear children. The alliance with Spain completely unravelled when her nephew, who was who was king of Spain and emperor by then, broke off the betrothal that had been arranged for Catherine's daughter Mary with him. And at the same time, Charles won a major victory over France, so he no longer needed the English alliance. On a more personal level, Henry fell in love with another woman. So there was Catherine at the age of 40, neither politically nor personally useful to her husband anymore, which obviously must have been very sad for her personally. And also politically, she had failed in her duty of creating a long-lasting alliance with her country. So Henry looked to have the marriage annulled. And in different political circumstances, he probably would have got his way. Popes very frequently did annul marriages for kings because that was part of the real politic of life. But as I mentioned before, Catherine's nephew, Charles, was now dominant in Europe and he put pressure on the Pope to not annul the marriage. So for a long period of time, six or seven years, there were endless arguments about was the marriage legal, was it valid, was it not? Catherine absolutely dug her heels in. She affirmed to the end of her life, swore it on on the Gospels, that her first marriage to Arthur had been in name only. They'd never consummated it. And therefore, her marriage to Henry was completely valid. And Henry, of course, although he never said that she was lying, he took the opposite position that the marriage had been valid and therefore he and Catherine should never have married in the first place. And and they had received a dispensation to be married, right? So a previous pope had said it was okay. Yes. And it's from so, that, it's from the line in Leviticus about how a man shouldn't take his brother's widow, just in case anybody hadn't kind of heard that before. I just wanted to put that in, I suppose. Yeah. Well, the the line in Leviticus says he shall not take his brother's wife. But then there's a later text in Deuteronomy that says he should marry his brother's widow. So there was some theological controversy about the whole thing. But the question was whether the Pope had the authority to dispense in such circumstances. Could the Pope actually change something that was specifically written in the Bible? as opposed to some of the other church rules which popes could make or unmake. And that's why Catherine's position was it didn't matter that there was a rule in the Bible about it because she'd never been his brother's wife. Whereas Henry's view was that the pope didn't have the power to do it. And the pope, obviously keen to hang on to his authority as the Reformation was beginning to take hold, was unlikely to agree that his predecessor had exceeded his powers. In fact, there were other arguments that Henry could have used, which Wolsey put forward, and which a number of Henry's biographers have set out, that in fact they had the wrong kind of dispensation. 
because if Catherine hadn't consummated the marriage, they should have had a dispensation against public honesty, which was a different kind of dispensation to say that even though people had thought they were married, even though people had thought that Catherine and Arthur were married, it was okay for her to marry his brother because, you know, it hadn't been a true marriage. So, so there were other arguments that Henry could have used, but for some reason he absolutely dug his heels in and wanted his argument to be the one that was considered by the Pope, which looking back you think, you know, it was, it was rather a foolish action because if they'd come up with a scheme whereby Catherine's face would have been saved, possibly the Pope might have been more inclined to grant it and Charles might have been willing to be bought off in some way. But for whatever reason, they pursued the argument and Henry was very much encouraged by Anne Boleyn, who was now effectively queen-in-waiting. Catherine was banished from court round about 1531, forbidden from seeing her daughter, sent to an increasingly depressing series of damp castles towards the Fens and really just abandoned to, you know, abandoned to die while Henry just got on with life because nobody was no, nobody was in a position to change anything in England. And the, the, the people who had spoken up for Catherine, like Moore and Fisher, uh, came to pretty unpleasant ends. And it, it was generally accepted, of course, amongst Henry's nobles that he really did need a son. They might not have chosen Anne as their ideal queen, but, you know, he did have a case. And Catherine, she never gave in. She insisted she was queen, um, that her marriage was valid. She died in 1536, still claiming her rights as queen. Wasn't there that story that she she still worked on Henry's shirts, like sewed the buttons or darned his shirts or whatever, even until almost the very end, show, like showing that she was still his queen, no matter what he said, and like so much so that she would still like take care of him like that. She, certain, she certainly carried on sewing, sewing for him well up into the early 1530s. Yes, much to the disgust and horror of Anne Boleyn, who was, who felt that really, yes, this was a wifely duty that Henry's so-called sister-in-law should not be performing. So Anne, who was um, perhaps of a rather violent temper, got very upset about this and, and yelled at Henry, who apparently was very embarrassed about the whole thing. And subsequent to that, when Catherine sent him presents, he had them sent back to her. Yes, he, he liked to keep Anne happy. She was a, a lady with a very sharp tongue. Yeah. Well, he liked to keep her happy until until she also her, failed in her, yes. her queenly duty, I suppose. Yes. But that's a different story. I, I think it's interesting, this whole idea about Henry needing to have a male heir, because now we can look back on the Tudor dynasty and see it as such a, a strong a strong one. But for Henry, the, the Wars of the Roses wasn't that far behind. And his father had had a tenuous claim to the throne uh, just through battle, I suppose, and, and having the blood, but it wasn't as strong as perhaps some other claimants could have been. But um, it, it seemed like he was really worried that if that with only a female heir, England could be thrown right back into civil war. And for us, it looks absurd because, of course, we saw Queen Elizabeth and and had you know the, the strength of of the Tudors. But for him, that was really real. But I think it's interesting that for Catherine, her mother was a queen in her own right um, in Spain. And I wonder how that affected kind of her understanding of Henry needing to have this male heir, which was so important for him. And 
did she understand that or would she have thought, well, a woman can be queen just as well? Look at my mother. I think probably somewhere between those two points. I, and Isabella of Castile was undoubtedly one of the most successful monarchs in Europe in the, in the whole of the Middle Ages. She was an absolutely astonishing woman. She took the throne possibly in rather dubious circumstances herself when she was only 17, I think. Uh, so she was she was a fighter from the start and she was the dominant party in, in the marriage with Ferdinand. So yes, when Catherine could have looked back and seen her mother's triumph as a queen and thought, well, why is Henry making such a fuss about it? But we shouldn't put a 21st century view of female equality into Catherine's mind. She would have preferred to have a son in the same way that Queen Isabella was devastated when she lost her own son and heir. Uh, for, for Catherine, the ideal outcome would have been for her her little boy, the Duke of Cornwall, to live and for her daughter Mary to become empress. That would have been you know, the, the, the perfect outcome. So she would have understood Henry's need, although she may have thought it was exaggerated. But I also think there's another aspect to Henry wanting a son. Over the whole course of Henry's life, you can see... I know it, it sounds a bit unlikely, but I think there was a, I think there was a whole self-esteem issue going on with Henry. There are a couple of points later in his life when it certainly appeared that perhaps he wasn't as, what should we say, so as dominant in the bedroom as perhaps he might like people to have thought. And Anne Boleyn famously suggested that he wasn't always up to the job, and he had difficulties with Anne, Anne of Cleves, which he blamed on her being very unattractive. So it might be that his, he felt a little bit concerned about, you know, his own performance in, in having children. Yes, although, although um, not having children was generally blamed on the wife, it was also believed that a woman didn't conceive unless she'd had an orgasm. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily all Catherine's fault, he might have been thinking. I think that's one of the reasons behind him being pleased to have had a son by his mistress, Bessie Blount. It did indicate that actually he was a, a virile man and could have a son and therefore he, he could be then quite sure that it was all Catherine's fault. Sorry, I got you a little bit sidetracked there. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so with Catherine, she spent these years in limbo in England after Arthur died how how do you think that affected her? And I, I think it's an interesting sort of parallel with her time then and then the last five years of her life when she was again by herself in sort of a limbo position. Um, I wonder if if you can draw any if you draw any parallels to that and how you think she might have used that early experience later in her life when she was separated from her daughter and her friends and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a really interesting parallel. I read recently that a philosopher whose name I can't remember at the moment said that suffering ceases to be suffering when it has a cause. And I think that's how Catherine dealt with the, the suffering that she did have in her life. I think she saw it as part of a greater good. And therefore, although I don't suppose for a moment that she would have liked to be martyred. She was the kind of personality who would have been willing to willing to die for a for a cause. Her years as you know the widowed princess of Wales, she never gave up hope that she would be married to Henry. She was absolutely certain in her home mind that to be queen of England was her destiny. And for her after those unpleasant years it did all actually all work out. She did marry Henry. 
Therefore, it might be that she continued to hope during the early 1530s that the situation would resolve itself, that the Pope would rule in her favour, and you know that God's will for her to be Queen of England would triumph. She was clearly not somebody who ever gave up. She wouldn't compromise. She just had a vision of, of herself as a rightful queen, and then after that of Mary's rights as well. So she would have seen the suffering as as leading towards a better future, perhaps. And is there any record of how she felt about Henry embracing some of these new ideas? And I, I've done a people who are listening to who've listened to the Renaissance English history podcast for a while will remember me having done some episodes talking about Henry and his religion and how it, it wasn't that he was necessarily Protestant. It was just that he wanted a version of Catholicism where he was the head and not the Pope. But at, at the same time, he was being pretty heretical by saying that the Pope didn't have this, this right to be in charge of the church in England. And I just wonder what Catherine would have thought about this and how this might have affected her that, you know, there was, it was essentially like a a country that was being taken into, into this whole new world of places, a place she probably wouldn't have wanted it to go spiritually. And if that was, if she had to keep fighting to prevent that, or if maybe if she just would have sort of given in, it might not have gone to the extreme that it had. And I just wonder if there are any kind of records of how she would have thought about that. Well, as you say, there were no real doctrinal changes during Catherine's lifetime, and she didn't see the dissolution of the monasteries, which would really have brought home the break with Rome to to the Catholic population. It was not unusual for kings and popes to quarrel. That's certain. Um, they'd frequently done it before. And it doesn't appear that Catherine had a particularly high opinion of the Pope as an individual, although she absolutely respected his spiritual authority. And also, interestingly, she wasn't necessarily a stickler for some of the minor rules of the church. For example, when she was in that period we talked about of limbo after Arthur's death, she wrote home that she was amazed that people thought that eating meat on a fasting day was practically the sign of a heretic, which suggested that, you know, she herself thought it was perfectly okay. She would no doubt have blamed Anne Boleyn for any heretical notions that Henry might have got into his head. She does seem to have, you know, perhaps some self-delusion here, blamed other people for Henry's misbehaviour all along. Now, you know, we've all done that, haven't we? You, you You blame the other person because you don't want to blame the person whose responsibility it really is. She probably would have thought that, you know, Henry would come to his senses. But of course, she she was not a fool. She knew that the longer the Pope didn't make a ruling, the harder it was going to get. There is some suggestion that at the end of her life, she did on one occasion say to uh, Eustace Shapwees that she wondered whether she had done the right thing. But it was a momentary, a momentary moment of weakness rather than a, a settled idea. So... She did have a daughter, Mary, and what what was her relationship like with Mary? I know towards the end she couldn't see her, but what kind of a relationship did they have? Well, they'd been very close when Mary was a child. Catherine herself was much closer to her parents than, than many royal children ever were, and she had the same close relationship with her daughter. It's probable, although not certain, that she gave Mary her first lessons in Latin, and later when Mary was sent to Wales... 
when she was nine to act as Princess of Wales. Catherine wrote to her and asked her to keep sending her her school exercises so that Catherine could see how she was progressing. She continued to write very warm and affectionate letters to Mary even after they were parted. And she gave Mary plenty of advice on how to conduct herself. She warned her not to get involved in political discussions, to not do anything that was against her conscience, but other than that, to obey her father, to act as a good daughter. When Mary was ill, after they'd been separated, probably through stress and fear, she was in her teens and at a difficult age, Catherine begged Henry to let Mary be nursed by her personally, saying she'd put her in her own bed and care for her with her own hands. But Henry, rather unkindly, refused to to let her see her. There is a letter that purports to be Catherine's last letter written on her deathbed. There's some discussion as to whether it's genuine or not. But in it, she does ask Henry to care for their daughter uh, and suggests that, you know, that was one of the last things on her mind was, was Mary's health and happiness. So, yeah, sad. I have a daughter, so it makes me want to cry. Like if somebody kept me away from Hannah, I'd be like, oh, nope, I, that's not going to happen. But the times were different yes. then. <laughs> yes. And and it's difficult, isn't it? Because if, if, if Catherine had given in in the beginning, if she had accepted Henry's desire for an annulment, he would have undoubtedly treated her respectfully, kindly. I mean... Like he did with Anne of Cleves. Yes, exactly. And, you know, he and Catherine had been married for 20 years. And, he, you know, he genuinely loved Catherine when they were younger. And he, he was still fond of her when they, st- you know, when the divorce proceedings began. It wasn't like he hated her. Obviously, he came to resent her and hate her and feel she was standing in his way. But it, it wasn't, you know, when he'd fallen in love with another woman. But it wasn't that it didn't start off right. as personal animosity. Right. So sad. Yeah. What what about her relationships at, at court? So when she was younger, they enjoyed having parties and dancing. Was Did she ever become a part of a big part of life in the Tudor court? Or because she was Spanish, was it always was she kind of outside it? What was what was life like for her at court? Oh, no, she was definitely a part of part of the court. I mean, she left Spain when she was she was 15. I always find when they show her on television as having a broken accent. I mean, really, she lived in she lived in in, in England from the time she was fifteen. She did speak very good English. She she may have had an accent, but she spoke and wrote and conducted her life largely in English. Uh, so yes, yeah, so in 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 her younger days, there were constant parties and joustings and masks and all the rest of it. She was a very successful regent. Henry's uh, period in France, as we as we discussed before, and she was surrounded by the wives and the daughters of England's premier nobility. The, the Duke of Buckingham's sisters were her ladies in waiting. The Earl of Surrey's uh, wife, the Duke of Norfolk, later, you know, she 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 was a, a, a central part of the court. She was also very important in Henry's patronage of scholars and musicians. Henry and Catherine both enjoyed music. Uh, they both patronised Erasmus and Collett and other humanist writers. She, she, you know, they paid paid for them, essentially. So, so she was part of it, the intellectual life. And then later, at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, their massive junket into France in 1520, Catherine presided over the English court with her counterpart, Queen Claude of France. So, no, she was very much an integral part up until probably the mid-1520s, when obviously, as we mentioned before, the political situation went downhill. 
and England moved more towards alliance with France, away from the Spanish alliance. That took me to my next question, which was how he had obviously been so in love with her early on and trusted her. And did that change simply because she was getting older and unable to bear a son? Or did it also have to do with the changes in his foreign policy? So if you can talk just a little bit, I know you touched on it earlier, but if there's anything more you want to add to that? Yes, I I, I think Catherine was the embodiment of of a a policy that had been started by Henry VII and continued by Henry VIII, or not just started by Henry VII. England and France had been at war on and off for a very long time. And we can look back and say, well, we know the Hundred Years of War, Hundred Years War was over. But for Henry, it wasn't over. He still fancied himself as King of France. And he, in his early days, or even in his later days, because he, he continued to fight with France until the end of his reign, he wanted to be Henry V and and reconquer France. So the alliance with Spain was important from that perspective. And it was also important because the King of Spain, Catherine's nephew Charles, was also Duke of Burgundy. And Burgundy had been England's most important trading partner since the Middle Ages. In, In the cloth trade between the two countries was a major source of revenue. So Catherine because the because Burgundy and Spain were now in personal union, she was a very important part of that 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 policy of friendship with with Spain and Burgundy. But as Spain and Charles became too powerful, he became Holy Roman Emperor as well. It didn't. It it wasn't considered ideal for for one monarch to have so much power, and the French and the English then looked to contain the contain that power. So in the 1520s, there was much more of a move towards first a, a, a position of neutrality and then towards alliance with France to, to sort of contain Charles's power. Unfortunately for Henry, at the very time he was looking at allying with France, France was heavily defeated by Charles at the Battle of Pavia, where the King of France was actually taken prisoner by Charles. And Charles became master of Italy and master of the Pope. So it was very unfortunate for Henry that he was changing changing political horses just at the time when, when his former ally was becoming very powerful. But for Catherine, you know, Charles now becoming the enemy, it, it certainly didn't help her cause at all. So more personally with her, is there any record or how do you think that her struggle with fertility would have affected her? Like that was her main role in life was to bear sons and and um, the foreign policy part as well. But her main job was to was to have a son. And given that she didn't seem to be able to do that, um, which I know a lot of people now are saying was down to Henry as well, quite possibly. Um, but for whatever reason, she wasn't able to do that. Like, how how do you think that would have affected her? It's interesting. As you say, at the time, everybody would have pretty much blamed Catherine, even though we might now say, well, hang on a minute, there were two of them here. Her only actual recorded comment that I can think of on it was in the famous speech she made at Blackfriars when her marriage was being tried in open court by the two cardinals, Wolsey and the Pope's legate Campeggio. And she famously got up and knelt in front of Henry and said, you know, our marriage is valid, etc. And she said, although it has pleased God to take her children, through no fault of mine. So she rejected the notion that it was 
her fault. It was God's will. Of course, she must have been on a personal level deeply, deeply unhappy to lose probably six out of seven children. And she didn't miscarry early. She tended, she miscarried or had stillbirths at a late stage. So eight, eight months or the children being born and then dying. So it wasn't even a case of, you know, at a few weeks, she, she carried these babies almost full term. So it must have been emotionally, I mean, goodness knows what her hormones must have been like, <laughs> you know, in a practical sense, because you look back and you think, well, you know, we just gloss over these things. But I'm sure any woman who's had children will know, you know, how hormonal and difficult and, and things the whole the whole thing can be. So it would have been deeply, deeply depressing and distressing for her personally. Henry, fair to be fair to him, for the first the first losses, even the even the little boy, he comforted Catherine. He was by her side. He never appeared to blame her at a personal level. It was almost perhaps his reluctance to blame her personally that led him to look into his Bible and realise in his own mind that God was punishing them for for the sin of marrying. I often feel like I identify with her now later in, in life, having had a fertility struggle of my own and everything. And I just think, gosh, like the weight of the world must have mm. been on her that here she was unable to do her one job. And then like her whole church is blown apart in England. Of course, she didn't live to see all of that, but still to to think of what happened because mm. she had some fertility issues. It's, yes. So what, what sort of uh, good friends, what kind of relationships did she have with people towards the end of her life? Um, did she have any kind of support network at all once she was banished and, and who would have been with her? She certainly had a lot of support at court in the late 1520s. This was for a variety of reasons. Lots of from a political point of view, the alliance with Burgundy that I've mentioned remained an important part of, of, of England's need to to export goods. So people were not that thrilled with quarrelling with the emperor. On a personal level, Anne Boleyn was not popular. The very idea that, that a, a royal daughter like Catherine would be thrown aside for you know, somebody who was a knight's daughter wasn't something that went down well with 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 the nobility. That they would have to, you know, curtsy to to somebody who they thought was was pretty low born. Uh, Catherine had been popular. Her ladies in waiting, some of them some of them supported Anne, but by and large, the the older generation supported Catherine. Amongst the Henry's own family, her sister in law Mary, the French queen, who was Duchess of Suffolk by then. She was very much on Catherine's side, although she died in 1533. The duchesses of Norfolk, well, there were, there were two duchesses. One, one was a dowager and one was the current duchess. The current duchess was a close friend of Catherine's and apparently even smuggled letters into her, hidden in an orange, apparently, which is, which is quite a fun idea. But um, whereas the, the dowager duchess was a, a firm, firm supporter of Anne Boleyn. Lady Salisbury, who was the the governess of Mary, but was also the king's cousin and a, a noblewoman in her own right. She was she was countess herself. She was a, a strong supporter. Henry's other cousins, as in many cases of divorce, a lot of the the family who'd known the wife for a long time tended to side with her against the newcomer. The, her, her closest supporter and, and friend, if you can if you can say, an ambassador as a friend, was. Charles's ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, who seems to have had rather a, 
a soft spot for her personally. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting he was in love with her, but he seems to have had a great deal of respect and admiration for her as a as an individual, and he fought tirelessly to get Charles to support her with more than words, which he never did. So it's good to to think about, even though she was alone, she still had people supporting her and, and around her who loved her. And at the very end, her, her oldest friend, a lady called Maria de Salinas, who was Lady Willoughby de Brooke by then, she lied her way into the castle at Kimbolton where Catherine was dying to make sure that she wasn't alone at the end. Generally, the storyline of Catherine is, you know, this wronged woman who suffered and all of that. What should we know about her that isn't generally part of that storyline? Like, what are the other sides of her? Uh, I think one of the areas that is less talked about was a point I mentioned earlier, her her interest in humanism and the new learning. You know, people think of her as very hidebound and old-fashioned Catholic, you know, opposed to reform root and branch. But actually, she was very well educated in her generation, one of the first women to really benefit from a humanist education. She learned to speak and write Latin. She she studied history and politics and philosophy, which most women didn't. And none of Henry VIII's other queens were educated to the level that Catherine was. So she had an interest in scholarship and new ideas. She was, as I say, supervised the education of her daughter. She commissioned works from humanists such as Vive. I'm not sure on that. You, you'll have to say that one in Spanish, Juan Luis Vive, who was a, a noted humanist to actually develop an educational program for Mary. Her activities as regent. She was also very interested in the Navy. She had, she, she attended with Henry a couple of inaugurations of ships. There was one, the Peter Pomegranate, which was named for her, her badge of the Pomegranate. The Catherine Pleasance, which was more of a pleasure, pleasure ship for her and her and Henry. And yeah, so, and she wanted, she, she took an interest in shipbuilding during the wars with France in 1513. So, so she was, she, she was interested in more than just religion. So where can people, where can people go to find out more about Catherine? Well, if you'd like to read about her, there have been two really good biographies in the last few years, one by a chap called Giles Tremlett and one by Patrick Williams. And both of them have looked at it much more from the perspective of information that's available in the Spanish archives. Previous to that, there was only one really good biography, or even one at all, uh, which dates from the 1930s, I think, by Gerard Mattingly. Uh, Again, in books, she's also forms sections in the various books on the Six Wives by Antonia Fraser or Alison Weir, David Starkey, David Lodes, and I think are the main ones. For fiction, she's the heroine of probably my favourite fictional, historical fiction book of all time, Nora Loft's book, The King's Pleasure. But she is also, today, May the 5th, the subject of Alison Weir's new novel, Catherine of Aragon, The True Queen. So that'll be an interesting read. If you'd like to see where she is buried, Peterborough Cathedral, there's a monument to her which was put in place in the late 19th century, actually paid for by all the ladies called Catherine in England who were asked to to make a contribution, or perhaps not all of them. But um, uh, So you can, you can go and see her tomb at Peterborough Cathedral and every year they have a ceremony commemorating her life there 
if you're in foreign parts, then uh, the Alhambra in Spain is clearly a marvellous place to visit. And it's where Catherine spent the last years of her life before coming to England. And Ludlow Castle on the Marches of Wales is also associated with her. So a few places around. I can vouch for the Alhambra. <laughs> yes, thought you might. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you, Melita. Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us about Catherine of Aragon. For more information on Catherine, go to www.tutortimes.co.uk or see the resources available on the EnglandCast site at www.englandcast.com. And I will be back with you in about two more weeks, wrapping up the little unit I've been doing on the history of the Elizabethan theater. So for those of you who've been listening, we talked about the history of the theater. Then we did another episode introducing Shakespeare. And this third episode is going to talk about the other working playwrights and actors during the time of Shakespeare, because he wasn't actually the only one writing plays in Elizabethan London. So there were other ones that we should talk about as well. So we're going to do that in about two more weeks. So I will talk with you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>